With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And uh, were you working at Bojangles Restaurant on the evening of May 5th of 1993? Yes, sir. And on that evening, uh, was there something unusual that occurred there at the restaurant? Yes, sir, there was. Could you tell us what happened? <clears throat> well, it was about 9.30 at night. A uh, lady and her daughter came in to order some supper, I guess it was, for them. Uh, we took her order, and the lady said that she needed to take her daughter to the restroom, so I told her it was right around the corner. She immediately came back around, and uh, I asked her if there was a problem, and she said, yes, sir, there's a gentleman in the women's restroom. I said, okay, I'll go check it out. And at the time I found a black gentleman sitting in the women's restroom on the commode with his head in his lap. He was, like I said, had his head in his lap and there was blood dripping off of his forearm. May 5, 1993, the Bojangles Restaurant was located at 1551 North Missouri Street. For those of you that aren't familiar with Bojangles, it's a chicken place, very similar to KFC. Bojangles only exist in the South, so if you live north of the Mason-Dixon line, you likely have never heard of it. Bojangles has been around since the 70s. Now, this particular Bojangles is located about a mile and a half by road from the crime scene where Stevie, Michael, and Christopher's bodies were discovered. Although as the crow flies, the restaurant is less than a mile away. In order for you to track and understand the significance of today's episode, you're going to have to have a pretty good mental image of the layout from the crime scene at the end of West Macaulay Street all the way down the 10-mile bayou to the Bojangles restaurant on North Missouri. In order to give you a better idea of what this area looked like, earlier this week I posted a video on our YouTube channel, which you can find by looking up the Truth and Justice podcast on YouTube. If you watch the video, you'll get a clear look at the distance and terrain. Keep in mind that at the beginning of the video, I marked the discovery side of the bodies. The first thing you're going to notice is that there's no woods or creek there. And that's because some time ago, the landowner bulldozed down the woods and filled in the creek. The area is now just a wheat field. It's odd when you compare the old aerial images to the way the field stands today. Standing there is an eerie feeling. It's like West Memphis is trying to forget this horrific crime ever even occurred and forget about the three boys who lost their life in that creek 24 years ago.
Without the visual aid, I'm going to do my best here to try to describe this scene to you. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the 10-mile bayou flows east to west along the north end of the neighborhood where the boys were found. The relevant section of the bayou we're going to discuss today goes from the pipe bridge directly west for about three-quarters of a mile. The path of travel from the discovery site would be down the small creek about 50 feet into the 10-mile bayou. You then travel due west for about a half a mile along the bayou when it comes to a set of railroad tracks and makes a hard right turn. You'll then go north by northwest up the bayou for about another half mile, and then in order to get to the Bojangles, you would make a left out of the bayou, across some railroad tracks, down into another ditch and creek, back out of that ditch and creek, and across the parking lot to the Bojangles. For any of you that live in the area or are visiting and want to check out some of the site locations, the Bojangles is no longer a Bojangles. It's now a restaurant called Sharky's. Now looking at the area around Bojangles, back in 93, the restaurant was sandwiched in by two gas stations, one to the north and one to the south. But if you go back into the parking lot of the Bojangles and head to the south, there's another small drainage ditch that borders the south side of the parking lot. After that, there's an open field, and that comes out into an area where there's a liquor store. The area where the restaurant sits is a highly commercial area. So going north, you're just going to find more gas stations and restaurants and stores. Now, the reason that all of this is important is because that on the very night that Stevie, Christopher, and Michael went missing, during the search efforts, a man appeared in the woman's restroom of this Bojangles. I say appeared because evidently no one actually saw him come in. He was just there. Every time I bring up this so-called Bojangles man to anyone who's familiar with the case, or when they bring him up to me for that matter, I usually get about the same story. Around 9.30 on the night the boys went missing, a black guy covered in mud and bleeding stumbled into the Bojangles that's right next to the bayou. Many, many people over the years have presented Bojangles as a solid, viable alternate suspect. A lead that was never followed. But it's funny how over time, perceptions change. Times shift, descriptions become more vivid, and the truth takes on a whole new meaning. In order to demonstrate this, today we're going to work backwards in time. We're going to begin today's episode with the full testimony of the Bojangles manager, Marty King. I want to point out that I did edit out about five minutes of his testimony, and that's because during that time, King was off mic and just pointing to locations on a map. And again, you can get a clearer picture of the terrain by watching our YouTube video. Here's what Marty King had to say at trial in 1994, several months after the murders. And uh, uh, were you also managing a restaurant on uh, May 5th and May 6th of 1993? Yes, sir. And where was that? In West Memphis. It was the Bojangles restaurant. In West Memphis, Arkansas? Yes, sir. And um, where is that restaurant located? It's on North Missouri Street. In in West Memphis? Yes, sir. Okay. About how far from the interstate would that be? Less than a half a mile. Okay. And uh, were you working at Bojangles Restaurant on the evening of May 5th of 1993? Yes, sir. And... On that evening, uh, was there 
something unusual that occurred there at the restaurant? Yes, sir, there was. Could you tell us what happened? <clears throat> well, it was about 9.30 at night. A uh, lady and her daughter came in to order some supper, I guess it was, for them. Uh, we took her order, and the lady said that she needed to take her daughter to the restroom, so I told her it was right around the corner. She immediately came back around, and uh, I asked her if there was a problem, and she said, yes, sir, there's a gentleman in the women's restroom. I said, okay, I'll go check it out. And at the time, I found a black gentleman sitting in the women's restroom on the commode with his head in his lap. Uh, there could you, was could you describe the man? Uh, I later found that he was probably about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, somewhere in that area. About 165 pounds, real thin man. Uh, Tell us about his appearance. He was, like I said, had his head in his lap and there was blood dripping off of his forearm and there was blood on the wall as far as where he had leaned up against the wall maybe staggered in I don't, uh, but he had mud on his feet uh, and he seemed to be disarrayed when I talked to him he raised up and kind of slurred that he was alright and I gave him a few more minutes to come on out and he never did so I went back and checked on him again and that's I called the police then so you called the police and asked them to come down there? Yes, sir. Did the police actually come to Bojangles restaurant? Uh, yes, sir, they did. And do you recall what officer came? It was a female officer for the West Memphis Police Department. Oh. And uh, she pulled on the lot and I saw her coming, so I went up to the front door. Well, she kept coming around. She went to the drive through window. Okay. Did she ever come <coughs> into the restaurant uh, to look inside the restaurant? No, sir. And um, what happened then? I told her what the problem was and that uh, the gentleman had previously left the restaurant walking and she basically got a description and <coughs> left the restaurant. Did she ever come back to the restaurant that evening? No, sir. Have you ever talked with her since then? No, sir. Not about that subject. Okay. Uh, did you know her? Uh, no, sir. I just know her by sight. Okay. Now, um, describe for us, did you go back into the, that lady's restroom that evening? Yes, sir. We had to clean it up. What, what was in there? Well, like I mentioned, there was blood, mud. A uh, gentleman had a, wasted a whole roll of toilet tissue by soaking up blood or grabbing for it or something because he had used the restroom all over himself and sat in it. Uh, so I assumed that he was trying to clean himself up, uh, but it had blood all over it. There was over a curse. The, over the toilet paper? Yes, sir. Uh, <coughs> describe that toilet paper roll for us. Well, it was saturated all the way down to the cardboard roll. So what did you do with that uh, roll of toilet paper? I just threw it in the garbage at, at that time. Was there anything else in there? Yes, sir. There was a pair of sunglasses that uh, evidently he had apparently tried to flush down a commode. Okay. What did you do with those sunglasses? Just fished them out and throw them in the garbage also. Okay. And then, um, was there mud in there? Yes, sir. There was a, uh, quite a bit of mud on the floor. How did you clean this up? Well, we drug a water hose around and washed it out. Is that the normal way for you doing that? Uh, no, sir. It would normally be just swept up and mopped, but 
you know, there was a large amount of mud on his feet and that was on the floor, so we just washed it down the drain. Okay. And uh, the blood, did you say it was on the wall? Yes, sir. There was some on the uh, above the commode on the wall. Maybe looked where like he had leaned up against the wall because it looked like to be the impression of a forearm. And uh, was there blood other places also? There was some blood on the floor, like I said, beside the commode where he was sitting. There was some on the doorknob and on the in the hallway where he had left also. Okay. And did you ever see this man again? No, sir. Okay. Uh, did an officer... Any officer, not uh, the officer that drove through the drive-through, but did any other officer come out there that evening? Not that evening. Uh, were you working on the day of May 6th of 1993? Yes, sir. I opened that morning. And um, did anything occur on that day? Well, an off-duty officer came in and by the name of Billy Covington, a friend of mine, and I was telling him about the event that had happened the night before and kind of struck him in a strange way, and he said, don't clean, you know, don't clean that blood off the door handles or off the wall or anything, and I'll get back with you in a little while. Okay, and then what happened? Uh, later on that afternoon, two detectives came out, and they took a report as far as what I'd seen, uh, description of the gentleman, and then they took blood scrapings off the wall in the women's restroom, off the men's door in the hallway, and off the wall in the hallway. Was that Detectives Ridge and Allen? Yes, sir. And uh, could you describe their appearance that day? Well, they had been at, um, I later found out that they had been at the crime scene and had been wading in mud and water up to their knees. And uh, one of them asked me, he said, did the man appear to have muddy feet like mine? And I said, yes, sir. He said, because we've been out there all morning long in the water and the mud and was just asking if his looked like the gentleman's on the, that I'd seen, and I told him, yes, sir, that they were muddy like that also. Okay. Now, did, um, was there a discussion with Detectives Ridge and Allen about the sunglasses? Well, I had told them about them, and uh, they asked me what I did with them, and I told them I threw them in the garbage, and uh, we fished them out, and they took them with them. They took them with them? Yes, sir. What about the roll of toilet paper that had been soaked down to the core with the blood? What I told them about that also, and they said that we didn't need that. So they didn't need it? No, sir. They said, uh, just discard that. Have you ever heard from Detectives Ridge, Detective Allen, or any other person about this since then? No, sir. That's all I have. Any cross-examination? Yes, sir. In fact, right in behind your business, you've got uh, the ditch, the railroad track, and you've got a, lot of some, uh, a strip of trees along the railroad track. Isn't that right? Yes, sir. All right. And uh, when you say that the, the muddy shoes look like the man who'd been in there, are you, you saying that it, the mud came from the same place? No, sir. You mean muddy shoes are muddy shoes? Uh, muddy shoes are muddy shoes to me. Okay. All right. And you don't know where the mud came from? I don't know where it came from, where he came from that right. night. And I didn't in, even see him coming to the restaurant. Okay, and in fact, you don't even know that those sunglasses are his, do you? I didn't see him wearing them. Okay. Now, when you went in there, you found him in the women's restroom? Yes, sir. Right, and you said that he appeared to be disarrayed? 
Yes, sir. When I spoke to him, he raised up like he didn't know where he was at and, oh. and slurred. Yeah, I'm okay. Like disoriented? Yes, sir. Okay. And in fact, he left blood and mud all over that restroom, right? Yes, sir. He left it on the wall and on the floor, mm -hmm. on the doorknob. Yes, sir. On the on the out in the hall. It wasn't actually on the hall floor. It was on the hall wall where he might have staggered. Okay. And and y'all cleaned that up, isn't that right? Yes, sir. Y'all cleaned. Y'all tried to clean it all up, didn't you? Yes, sir. And that was before Detective Ridge and Allen arrived, isn't that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So y'all had made efforts to clean it all up before they ever came, right? Yes, sir, because they came the next night. All right. Now, when um, Troman Meek came to the drive-in window, were you aware that she was trying to find three missing eight-year-old boys? No, sir. Okay. And the, when she came there, this person wasn't there anymore, isn't that right? Yes, sir. He had already left. <coughs> so what we've got after this man left is we don't have an area that's, that just has a few little drops of blood, but you've got blood and mud all over the place, right? Yes, sir. Okay. I don't have any further questions. Now, even though you tried to clean that, uh, clean it up, Detective Ridge did take scrapings, didn't he? Yes, sir. He, he took a pocket knife and okay. scraped it into an envelope. And you tried to give him that toilet po paper roll that was soaked to the core, but he didn't take that, did he? No, sir, he didn't. Did they take any soil samples out of the drain? No, sir. Okay. That's all. Anything else? No. Did you see the man leave? Yes, sir. I saw him leave. Was he on foot or in a vehicle? Yes, sir. He was on foot. Did you see which direction he went? He, when he went out to the restaurant, he went toward the back of the building, which would be going toward the ditch, but then left on foot down Missouri Street. All right. Anything else? Nothing further. Aren't you free to go? So let's break down Marty King's testimony. According to his testimony at trial, that evening's event went down as follows. It's 9.30 p.m., a woman and her daughter go to use the restroom and find a black male sitting on the toilet. Marty investigates, tells the man to leave. He describes the man as disoriented and slurring his words. He says that the man has muddy feet and he's bleeding from his forearm. Marty asks him to leave, gives him some time, and then checks back. When the man is still sitting there, King goes and calls the police. By the time Officer Regina Meek arrives on the scene, the man had left on foot. Meek pulls up to the drive through window, gets a description, and leaves and never returns. Marty then begins to clean the bathroom, where he finds that the man had defecated on himself and then sat in it. There was feces on the seat and the floor. There was also a bloody imprint of a forearm on the wall above the toilet, and the roll of toilet paper in the bathroom was completely saturated through to the cardboard core with blood. And there was also a pair of sunglasses found in the toilet. Once the staff of the Bojangles has finished cleaning the bathroom, they pretty much forget about the incident. That is until an off-duty officer comes in the next day, hears the story, and tells King that he should call detectives back out to the scene. Later that evening, after the bodies of the three boys were found, detectives Ridge and Allen come to the restaurant, take a statement from King, and collect a blood scraping from the wall to test for evidence. Marty King never heard from the West Memphis Police Department about this matter ever again, other than being subpoenaed to testify at the trial about eight months later.
At this point, Mr. Bojangles is starting to sound like a pretty viable suspect. He arrived at the Bojangles, which happens to be connected to the crime scene via the 10-mile bayou, two and a half hours after the boys were seen alive headed into the woods. Now, the question that those of you unfamiliar with the case are asking right now is what became of the blood evidence that was collected on the scene that night, right after the break. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Over the years, many have criticized Officer Regina Meek for not going inside the restaurant on the evening of May 5th as well as the fact that she didn't drive the streets looking for the bloody man. Now, there are two sides to this story. To begin with, we do have to keep in mind that Meek had no idea at this point that the boys had been murdered. All she knew is that the boys were missing. It's also important to point out that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the path of travel from the crime scene to the Bojangles by street really doesn't make it seem like it's even in the same proximity that the boys had gone missing from. At trial, Meek describes the area as being a completely different, quote, ward. She testified that she did not connect one incident with the other. Basically, after she received the report of the missing children, she got another call for service to investigate a strange man at a restaurant. When she arrived, the man was gone. Case closed. One common misconception, however, is the fact that Meek left the scene to go back looking for Michael, Christopher, and Stevie. This is just simply not accurate. After clearing the scene, Officer Meek actually went out to investigate a complaint of eggs being thrown at a house. The bottom line here is that it's understandable at this point that Regina didn't connect the strange man with the missing children, but at the same time, she did still have the duty to go inside the restaurant and investigate as well as fill out a proper report on the incident. On the contrary, she didn't do so much as document the visit at all, as though it never even happened. Even though it's about a mile and a half drive to get from the crime scene to the Bojangles, let's not forget that by way of the bayou, it's less than a mile trip. And that fact leads us back to Detectives Ridge and Allen's trip to the Bojangles the next day after the bodies were found. Like I said, at this point, the bodies had already been found and removed from the water. The boys were found in a muddy creek just down the bayou and had injuries that would have appeared to have left the offender or offenders covered in blood. Detective Ridge realizes that the Bojangles man could very well be the killer and returns to the restaurant. Even though you tried to clean that, uh, clean it up, Detective Ridge did take scrapings, didn't he? Yes, sir. He, he took a pocket knife and okay. scraped it into an envelope. And you tried to give him that toilet paper roll that was soaked to the core. 
But he didn't take that, did he? No, sir, he didn't. Did they take any soil samples out of the drain? No, sir. So whatever became of this blood evidence? Detective Rich, what is the date that you sent the blood scrapings off to the crime lab to be analyzed? They were never sent. They were never sent? That's correct. Where are the, the blood samples at this time? I don't know, sir. They're lost. They're lost? Yes, sir. That's my mistake. I lost a piece of evidence. Did the Bojangles man kill Stevie, Michael, and Christopher? Well, thanks to Detective Brian Ridge's incompetence, we may never know. And almost as frustrating as him losing the evidence is the fact that he offers no further explanation regarding the fact that he misplaced it, other than, quote, that's my mistake. I lost a piece of evidence. Without DNA testing, we're left to analyze Mr. Bojangles as a suspect given the information at hand. We've now heard Marty King's trial testimony from 1994, but let's go back now to 24 hours after the incident occurred. This is the handwritten statement from Marty King taken on May 6, 1993. Here's Detective Allen's report. Received a call to go to Bojangles and talk to the manager. 9 p.m., Detective Sergeant Allen and Detective Ridge went to Bojangles and talked with the manager. Marty King related that on May 5th, between 9 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., that a black male was found in the ladies' bathroom bleeding from the arm. The manager stated that the black male was 5'11", thin, dirty, late 20s, pair of sunglasses were left on toilet, suspected by black male. Subject had a blue cast-type brace on his arm that had white Velcro on it. The black man appeared to be mental-slash-disoriented. Parentheses, not intoxicated, are under influence of drugs. Police were called, subject left on foot, and walked east toward the back dumpster, then came back out on Missouri and walked toward Delta Service Station. Black male clothing was denim sleeveless shirt, black shoes, looked like tennis shoes, black thin warm-up pants. Report goes on to say, Detective Ridge took blood scrapings from north wall inside women's bathroom above toilet, took blood scraping from inside of door to women's bathroom and entrance hall to bathroom from sitting area at Bojangles. Signed, Mike Allen. When we travel back in time, much closer to the incident, we find some new information that wasn't brought up at trial. To begin with, Mr. Bojangles apparently had a cast on one of his arms. It's described as a blue cast-type brace with white Velcro. Also note in this statement, King describes the man's shoes as black tennis shoes. Nothing at all is mentioned about mud on the shoes. He simply states that they're black tennis shoes. In fact, contrary to popular belief, King never once used the word mud in his entire statement. The closest he comes is stating that the man was, quote, thin and dirty. So I'm left wondering exactly how much mud the Bojangles man actually had on his person. His shoes were clean enough to be described as black tennis shoes, and the cast is described as blue with white Velcro, and the word mud is completely absent from the report. Now, let's look a little deeper into Mr. Bojangles as a possible suspect. 
The first question we have is, did he have the opportunity to commit the murders and make it to Bojangles via the bayou by 9.30 p.m.? That's two and a half hours from the last time the boys were seen alive until he was spotted at the restaurant. Well, to begin with, the very first line of both this report and Marty King's trial testimony is inaccurate. Well, it was about 9.30 at night. A uh, lady and her daughter came in to order some supper, I guess it was, for them. Uh, we took her order, and the lady said that she needed to take her daughter to the restroom, so I told her it was right around the corner. Since Regina Meek didn't bother to make a report on the incident on the evening of May 5th, I was left to look to the West Memphis Police Department dispatch radio logs to establish an accurate timeline. And as it turns out, Marty King didn't find the strange black man in the women's restroom at 9.30 p.m., in fact, he's off by nearly an hour. Now, remember the sequence of events prior to him calling the police. The woman finds the man in the restroom. He was already there at that time, so no one knows when he came in. She tells King, he investigates, he talks to the man, asks him to leave, gives him a few minutes, and then checks back and he's still there. Then he calls the police. So let's say, to be conservative... Mr. Bojangles was in the restaurant no later than 8.30 p.m. So now our window of opportunity has shrunk from two and a half hours down to only 90 minutes. In order for Mr. Bojangles to be our guy, he would have had 90 minutes to find the boys, knock all three of them unconscious, strip them nude, remove their shoelaces, tie 12 knots and 6 bindings, place all three boys into the water, conceal their clothes in the water, wipe down the banks, then make the three-quarter of a mile walk down the bayou in the dark. So is Mr. Bojangles as a suspect a plausible theory? Let's break down everything we know, and then you decide. In our last Friday follow-up, many of you are questioning the idea of anyone being able to pull off this crime all the way from discovery, murder, to body concealment, and exit from the crime scene to have occurred in a one-hour time period. And I think that most of us agree that it can be done, but it would be tight. So as we move on discussing this, I'm going to assume that the very fastest that someone could have pulled all of this off would be about an hour. So that means that if Mr. Bojangles is the man that killed the boys, he would have 30 minutes at the most to get from the crime scene all the way to the restaurant. So let's talk about that terrain for a minute. And again, I would direct you to our YouTube channel to get a video description of what I'm talking about here. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. At the time of the murders, the water in the bayou was high and very muddy. There had been a lot of rainfall. And a grown man such as myself would probably have been up to about nipple to shoulder height in water if I were to stand in the bayou at that time. I can say that confidently after having actually stood in that bayou when the water was lower. 
Now, Mr. Bojangles was described as shorter than me. I'm six foot one. He was described anywhere between 5'8 and 5'11, depending on the different reports. So walking down the middle of the bayou, number one, would have been treacherous. It's also important to note that the bottom of that bayou is very sticky and deep mud. Personally, when walking in the bayou, just walking 10 or 15 feet left me completely exhausted. It's the type of mud that your foot sticks to. And when you pull it out, you might lose a boot. The entire bayou is like that. So I think that we can immediately rule out the fact that the Bojangles man walked through the bayou in the water. I don't think there's a human being on the planet that could make that walk in less than five hours. And I'm not even sure anyone can do it without collapsing. So let's move Mr. Bojangles out of the water onto the bank. Well, first we have to ask ourselves, why follow the bayou? The Blue Beacon truck wash is right there. There's an interstate right there. There's also a truck stop right there by the crime scene. All places where Mr. Bojangles could have found help if he needed it, to treat an injury or go to the bathroom or even to hitch a ride. But instead, he walks past all of those and continues down the bayou. So if this is our theory, that he's our killer and that's where he came from, we have to believe that the only reason he followed the bayou was to remain concealed to remove himself from the crime scene so that no one would see him. So since we know that he couldn't make the trek in the water, he's going to have to walk beside the water, on the banks. But we have some problems with that too. The banks of this bayou are not gradual and sloping. They're steep banks that drop straight into the bayou. And those banks aren't groomed, and they weren't groomed back then. Both sides of the banks are a tangled mess of sumac trees, poison ivy, poison oak, briars, and other weeds. They're infested with snakes and chiggers. Just making your way from the high side of the bank down to the water in one place will probably take you five to ten minutes. That's how long it took me when we had to make our way down to the pipe bridge. But let's say for a minute that Mr. Bojangles could walk along the bank, staying low enough so he wouldn't be seen by the apartment building, people at the truck stop, the people on 7th Street or anywhere else along the way. Well, the first problem we run into is when he gets to the 7th Street Bridge, which is just to the west of the neighborhood, about a quarter mile from the crime scene. There are two options there. Option one is to climb up and walk over the bridge, which is crossing a very busy road in clear view of anyone driving by, or go under the bridge. But this particular bridge, which you can see in the video, doesn't have an option to walk under it without being in the deep, muddy water. After the bridge, it's smooth sailing for about a half a mile, meaning someone walking the bayou could actually get up on the high side of the bank there and not be spotted. There was an open field to the north and a parking lot to the south. So for a brief time, you could get out of the water and out of the bank, but we have another problem. On both sides of the bayou, between the crime scene and the railroad tracks we're about to come to, there are other drainage ditches that flow into it. Meaning, even if you were out of the water, walking the bank, at some point you have to go down and get into very deep water, down a steep bank, to cross those drainage ditches that flow into the bayou. So now at this point you're about a half mile from the crime scene and we come to the railroad tracks, where the bayou makes a sharp turn to the north. The terrain stays about the same, very weedy, steep embankment, chiggers and everything else. And then you get to the Bojangles restaurant. Now why a person would decide to stop here and make the turn towards Bojangles is unbeknownst to me. Because you can't see the Bojangles restaurant from the bayou because there's a patch of woods between the bayou and the railroad tracks. But assuming that this is our guy and he gets out of the bayou, goes through the woods, comes to the railroad tracks, he would then come up to yet another ditch and creek. So again, if he was managing to stay out of the water at this point so he wouldn't be completely soaked up to his shoulders, 
it would all be for naught once he crossed the railroad tracks, because there's no way to get from the bayou to the Bojangles without going through this second creek. It's steep, it's deep, and there's no way to jump across it. You're going to have to go down into it and back up. All that being said, first we have to consider, could any human make that trip in less than 30 minutes? I personally find it unlikely. But let's move on from the terrain. Let's talk about that cast. Go back to the crime scene. Three boys, bludgeoned over the head, stripped nude, tied up, and drowned. Could someone with one arm in a cast complete such a task? And let's not forget those 12 knots that have to be tied. And furthermore, if they could complete the task, would it extend the time necessary for the crime to occur past our hour mark? I think we can all agree that most likely it would. Then we move to Mr. Bojangles while he's in the bathroom stall, described as having defecated on himself, sat in it, head in hands, slurring his words, in the women's restroom, bleeding on the wall. Now, there was a note in parentheses in the report that I read to you that says, not intoxicated or on drugs. But I wonder how Marty King could possibly know that. There's a man who had just pooped all over himself, sitting in the women's restroom, bleeding, slurring his words, and he's able from the doorway to decide that he's not drunk or on drugs. I guess I'll just leave that there. I guess we'll have to take his word for it on that. But given his current mental state, we have to ask ourselves, could someone in that state of mind been able to have the presence of mind to conceal that crime scene? The meticulous job that was done concealing it. Now, some people have argued that he's in that state of mind because he's traumatized from the crime itself. And I suppose you could make that argument, but I wonder at what time he switched from calculated killer to blubbering mess who's defecating on himself. But while we're on the topic of his state of mind, let's also consider the fact that supposedly, if he's our guy, Mr. Bojangles just killed three little boys and trekked all the way across the water to get away from the crime scene through that awful terrain, finally makes it to safety, and the manager comes in and says, if you don't leave, I'm going to call the police, and all he says is, I'm okay. He doesn't get up, and he doesn't leave. King says he left him for a little bit and came back, and he was still there. So we have to ask ourselves, would someone make that much of an effort to avoid police, and then when they're told the police are now coming, and you're sitting there covered in supposedly the blood of yourself or the victims, and rather than leave, you just sit there and wait for the police to arrive. And speaking of the blood and mud, let's talk about that for a minute. Again, how much mud did he really have on him? His shoes weren't so muddy that Mr. King couldn't tell that they were black tennis shoes. He also has that cast that's described as blue with white Velcro. Now, we have to make some assumptions here, but I'm wondering, is it possible that this man was completely covered in mud, and yet still have those few items that Marty King would have noticed. Seems a bit unlikely. Now, in his trial testimony, King did say that he remembered cleaning the floor with a hose. So clearly there was some mud on the floor or dirt or blood. But I certainly don't think that the man was covered in mud or blood, nor was he completely soaking wet. And let's not forget, by any method of him getting to Bojangles from the crime scene, even if he walked the banks of the bayou... He still, because of that last creek next to the railroad tracks, would have had to been completely submerged in water on his way to the restaurant. Now let's talk about the blood. Whose blood is it? He's supposedly in the restaurant bleeding badly enough that it's dripping on the floor and he completely soaks a roll of toilet paper all the way through to the cardboard. So when did he start bleeding? 
That's the question. There's no notation in any of the reports or testimony of a blood trail leading into the restaurant. He's also not wearing clothes that he could have bandaged the wound with. He's wearing a sleeveless shirt and the cuts on his forearm. So no blood trail into the restaurant. And if he was bleeding from committing the crime, and he was bleeding that profusely 30 minutes later, would he even be conscious after losing that much blood? I think when you look at the entire picture of Bojangles, the idea of him being the killer starts to look pretty bleak. I'm personally finding it very difficult to come up with any scenario that involves him being the murderer and then showing up at 8.30 at the Bojangles restaurant in the manner that he did. But for now, I'm going to leave that assessment up to you. And we'll talk about my theory about Bojangles this week on the Friday Follow-Up. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. Our Season 5 logo was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com and all music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. Thank you to Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. If it's not up and running by the time this episode drops, I would expect it very soon because Katie is getting very close to having it ready to publish. I also want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Make sure you send your thoughts, theories, comments, and questions before this Wednesday to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can send them to our Facebook page, the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. You can leave us a voicemail at 269-224-2833, or you can comment on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.